This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. This is Anne-Marie Schieber of Healthcare News. In just a few weeks, we are going to have a new Congress and a fresh start on healthcare policy. Now, much of the health policy over the last couple of years under the Biden administration has been driven by COVID-19. And my guests today say it's time to end that and concentrate on ways on making healthcare more affordable outside of government spending. Drew Keyes and Brian Blaze are with the Paragon Health Institute, with Brian as the director of the Private Health Reform Initiative there, and Drew, a senior policy analyst. Both are very familiar with the inner workings of Capitol Hill and have worked extensively on health market reforms. Let me ask both of you right off the bat before we get into some of the nuts and bolts. The Republicans are taking over the U.S. House. Uh, They seem to have a huge list of priorities. Do you think something meaningful can get done on health care? Brian, let's start with you. So it's a very narrow majority. uh, But what the majority allows Republicans to do is chair the committees. And when they chair the committees, they'll be setting priorities uh, and they'll be in charge of conducting oversight and investigations. I, spend, I, I expect them to spend uh, significant uh, uh, time and attention on a couple of areas related to the pandemic. Um, one is uh, probably related to the origins of the pandemic. Uh, I know that that's uh, a key issue for Senator Paul, who's chairing the oversight committee in the Senate. Uh, and you're also going to have them explore the various ways the government the public health agencies failed in their COVID response. So I would expect a lot of attention on CDC, NIH, and FDA. I think with respect to sort of uh, major uh, legislation, you're probably not going to see that in the healthcare space. Um, the big sort of ongoing issue is the uh, uh, implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act, which had an expansion of Obamacare subsidies, but those are in place through 2025. And then a new drug price control regime that HHS has to set up. So what about getting rid of those? The Inflation Reduction Act, again, you know, Democrats are in charge of the Senate. So even if Republicans wanted in the House wanted to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act, that legislation is not going to pass and um, and get to President Biden's desk. Um, but it is a massive new uh, price control regime that HHS is setting up, and Republicans are going to be very interested in um, understanding how that's being set up and to try to protect um, patients and protect uh, pharmaceutical innovation as much as possible. Yeah. Well, Drew, that, that's going to cover a lot of healthcare ground. What are your thoughts? I think what Brian mentioned earlier is really going to translate into an agenda that you'll see from the House Republicans, right? The oversight uh, especially as it relates to the pandemic and COVID, um, is going to turn into a conversation around a must-pass bill, the pandemics and all hazards, just preparedness act, PAPA. Um, and I think that's going to set up a conversation around CDC reform, around NIH reform, and that oversight will lead to to what reforms uh, are, are need to be made to to restore those uh, agencies to their core missions. And I think we saw a lot of mission creep over the past few years, and I think there's a lot um, of public distrust in public health right now 
And I would be I would be surprised if, if that didn't translate into CDC reform. I think there's also other areas to look at for for areas where there, there's more kind of bipartisan consensus around certain issues. I, I think of transparency. I think of hospital consolidation. I think of mental health issues. Um, and, and I think you might see some smaller pieces move there. Um, but then I think you're going to see a broader conversation around the reform that that really is geared more towards future years. Um, um, where, where perhaps Republicans have, have control of, uh, of more branches of government. Great. Um, I want to ask you a little bit more about the CDC and NIH a little bit in a, in a moment. Um, now, you guys have worked on a policy brief highlighting four priorities. Brian, let me ask you first. Um, you say it's important to put in place an anti-inflationary agenda that allows families and patients to have more control over their health care. Now, many people think the solution is more government control and spending to offset these high costs, not less. Why is that a boneheaded idea? Yeah, I mean, if you go to basic economics, you have supply and demand. And basically, you've got a very fixed amount of goods and services in the short run. And what the government has done with its fiscal policy over the last several years is um, just put a massive amount of uh, increased demand in the market, which has significantly raised prices. So we're seeing inflation at 40-year highs. You know, it's the number one issue that Americans are concerned about. And the healthcare agenda of the Biden administration has been very inflationary. So expanding Obamacare subsidies um, is just taking money that was spent um, by private households on health care and substituting that with taxpayer dollars. So it's just adding more money into the system, fueling uh, general price increases. Same thing with what they did with this fix to the so-called family glitch, which is just another expansion of subsidies Again, just more government spending crowding out private sector spending. And I mean, uh, sort of one of the main outcomes of the pandemic is a massive increase in Medicaid spending, which has been driven by federal, uh, the federal government paying more for uh, what states used to pay for their Medicaid program. Uh, so you have states that have, even though the federal government's running massive budget deficits, states have uh, significant uh, surpluses that they're, uh, uh, you know, increasing spending at the state level and doing tax cuts at the state level, which is very inflationary. So um, the, the last two years of the Biden administration, their health policy has just poured fuel on the overall inflationary fire. Yeah. And we should mention that health inflation started way before COVID. <laughs> I mean, this is nothing new. It didn't happen when gasoline prices. It's something we've we've gotten kind of um, we've kind of expected. Um, the second item you talk about is ending the, pu- the public health emergency. Drew, I, I think this renewal uh, for another 90, 90 days is going to end January 13th. Can you explain how ending the COVID-19 emergency, how that will help all Americans? You know, we've already seen um, on this debate kind of gear up here um, in the lame duck, right? And, and in um, this omnibus uh, package that is being considered uh, perhaps by the end of today in, in the Senate, um, a deal was struck to start unwinding, at least decoupling the public health emergency from a, a Medicaid provision that was enacted at the beginning. What, what happened in the omnibus is, is that began to decouple and states began to ask that, that they had more certainty uh, in being able to manage their Medicaid roles. Uh, this affects um, the, 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 the people who need Medicaid right, from being able to access those services while able-bodied adults um, and, and, and more and more Americans put a strain on our 
on on our safety net. Um, so so I think we've already seen we've already seen kind of progress being made there. Um, but but it extends beyond just Medicaid, right? The the public health emergency expands government power in, in many different ways um, through many different government programs. And ending it when it's no longer necessary will will allow more fiscal responsibility uh, throughout the federal government. Um, Brian, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. You know, uh, President Biden said that the uh, the pandemic is over, and he said that uh, you know six months ago, I think uh, it's time for the federal government to recognize that the public health emergency is over. Um, Republicans are trying to prioritize the end of the public health emergency. Just from what Drew said, I mean, whenever you declare emergencies, that is a reason for government uh, to expand its power. And, you know, COVID was awful. Uh, Government spending and power increased for a period of time. Uh, We've realized uh, how many failures the government's made. It's time for that power to go back to uh, the private sector uh, and and uh, uh, ending the public health emergency should be a really top priority for uh, Republicans in Congress. Now, Brian, you and I have talked about Medicaid oversight uh, before and uh, this issue of improper uh, enrollment. Um, can you explain to our listeners how this happens? What is it? People sign up for Medicaid and they stay on it for the rest of their lives and the money just keeps pouring in? Um, and, and what happened really, particularly under COVID, where they just kind of uh, taken a blind eye to these improper enrollments? Yeah, so COVID is the second part of the story. The first part is Obamacare. Obamacare contained a massive expansion of Medicaid, and uh, the federal government provided very high reimbursements for states for the Medicaid expansion population. And this is a population of able-bodied working age adults. So not people that we typically think of as truly needy, like lower income, pregnant women, um, seniors, and people with disabilities. Um, but if, because Obamacare uh, was so much more generous for states for this new population, states classified a lot of people as eligible for this population uh, who, who didn't meet the eligibility criteria just because they got a lot more money. So improper payment rates in Medicaid soared because of that. Um, and like Drew mentioned, uh, a provision of the uh, Coronavirus Relief Act passed in March 2020 prohibited states from removing anybody uh, who was no longer eligible for the Medicaid program uh, has a condition of states taking uh, more federal money uh, for Medicaid during the pandemic. So for the last three years, Emory, states haven't been able to remove people from Medicaid who aren't eligible for the program. So we've just had a compounding effect where now we're probably up to close to 20 million people enrolled in Medicaid who aren't eligible for the program. And that's all improper payments. So improper payments are um, payments that the government's making uh, that are not consistent with the law, like these payments should not lawfully be made. And at Paragon, we estimate those payments are uh, well in excess of $100 billion a year just for Medicaid. Wow. And of course, that leads to a lot of waste. When somebody has a free program, they don't think twice about spending money on it. Um, I, I don't know. Personally, it seems to me that the weights have gotten out of control for seeing a doctor. And I, and I wonder if this is because of the Medicaid explosion. Um, you know, there's rationing by weights, right? <laughs> Mercatus. Mercatus is actually out with a new paper where they look at um, uh, 
spending on Medicaid spending on kids in exp- Obamacare expansion states and non-expansion states, and they actually find that Medicaid spending on kids is declining um, uh, significantly in expansion states relative to non-expansion states. So you're starting to see evidence that uh, there are resources going away from the traditional Medicaid enrollees um, to these able-bodied uh, Medicaid enrollees, many of which have other sources of coverage too. That's the, that's another problem is these people should be on private uh, sector coverage and not on a uh, what Medicaid is. It's a welfare program. Right, right. And then, you know, they don't get employer care. They work part-time. It's just kind of crazy. Drew, I want to uh, talk back up a little bit. You mentioned something about restoring trust in the CDC and NIH um, what exactly now, you know, a lot of these agencies are under the control of the Biden administration. What exactly can Congress do to make these agencies more accountable to all Americans, not just those in select groups? No, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, uh, Emory. Um, we've seen, and I even think the public health community is starting to, to, to be a little bit aware of, of the public trust problem that they've, they've garnered over the past few years. Um, and you're, you're seeing it with vaccine hesitancy. You're seeing it um, with, with folks kind of just, you're seeing it in Florida, right, with, with, with kind of a public health commission that's um, really uh, kind of enacted to, to counter uh, the distrust of, of CDC. And you go back to the very roots of, of the CDC, and it was uh, it was started off kind of post-World War II, uh, kind of came out of a malaria control initiative, um, really rooted in the understanding that states are meant to lead, that public health is a local um, is a local program and it should have local authority. Um, and we've seen over the years uh, more and more of that authority be vested in the federal government and, and away from states. And, and what I think Congress can do is start to have a conversation about how we restore that balance, right? How we turn CDC back to a supporting role of states, um, how we kind of, uh, again, focus the CDC away from the areas that over the years where, where there's been a lot of mission creep. I, I always think of this story at the very outset of the pandemic. Um, it, it was a 60-minute story about the, uh, they titled the flight from hell, right? And, and this flight uh, was, was a bunch of passengers who had been on a cruise ship in Europe, um, all kind of uh, were, were affected by COVID. They all knew they had COVID. Uh, they all had fevers, were coughing, uh, had a lot of emergencies on the plane ride over. Uh, the CDC responded to that and sent uh, two or three uh, uh, folks over to the plane, took the temperatures of everyone on the plane, though everyone clearly had COVID, um, and then let everyone um, into the airport, except for a couple passengers. Um, the passengers themselves were shocked that they were let out, and that's their primary job. That's what we think they're supposed to be doing. At the same time, they have initiatives on climate change, on racial injustice, on a lot of stuff that, that most Americans don't think um, is really uh, the CDC's responsibility and primary duty. Um, I think Congress can can act to restore um, that primary role and that mission uh, at the CDC. I think it can uh, restore focus at the NIH to, to basic research. We just saw in this uh, recent omnibus uh, a whole new agency set up that's kind of adjacent to NIH um, to do to do real active science instead of basic science. Um, and 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 really restore it to 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 the the right role for government in in, in these areas. Um, and I think that conversation is going to naturally happen again later this year. All right, I've got one final question. You mentioned Senator Paul <laughs> really tearing after, um, and who knows what will happen in the next uh, Congress. But 
Uh, I want to talk about the Senate Help Committee because now we're going to have new leadership there. Bernie Sanders is going to be in charge. Uh, Senator Bill Cassidy will be uh, the ranking minority member. Um, This committee leads action on health policy, and they both have very different visions on how to achieve universal health care. Do you think that possibly we might see a miracle come out of that committee, or is it going to be fireworks? I... Drew, I'll start with you, and then, Brian, I'll get your thoughts. You know, I think that there, you know, are going to be some areas where where there may be um, um, some, you know, conversations at least. Uh, and I primarily think primarily think of that um, in in kind of the hospital consolidation piece. Um, but at the same time, I, I definitely think you you know, uh, uh, Senator Sanders uh, has a reputation for 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 kind of advancing a socialist agenda. I don't expect that to change. Um, I expect um, the tenor of it to, to really be um, mostly ideologically driven um, and, and kind of agenda setting. But then, again, as I said, I think that there are areas that I think of as 80% issues, hospital consolidation, price transparency, um, that there may be some agreement. Those conversations um, will be had, I think, for different reasons, and the motivation will be very different on both sides. Um, but I do expect some of those conversations to have to happen, as well as some conversations around what, it, what are the must-pass pieces of legislation that will come. I think of areas in mental health and PAPA as, as, as those areas. Uh, but then I do expect, um, as you mentioned, uh, so, some, some real fireworks, I think. Having Senator Cassidy on the other side of that means that some of those more kind of bipartisan areas, well, those conversations will be easier to have um, for, for, for defenders. But, but I do expect uh, the tenor of it to, to be pretty partisan. Yeah, Brian, what do you think? A miracle or fireworks? Yeah, so I, I wouldn't expect either, actually. I um, uh, Just from knowing Senator Cassidy, I don't think he, his personality is not fireworks. He is actually, he's one of the most unique members of Congress um, uh, that I've ever interacted with. He, in many ways, is more like a staffer than a member of Congress. And I, I say that as a compliment to him. He, he gets into the policy details at a level that most other members of Congress don't. Um, he's, uh, he's very thoughtful. You know, he's a medical doctor and, um, and he's got, he's really, uh, uh, got a great background. I mean, he, he, when he was uh, practicing in Louisiana, spent a lot of time on, on charitable care. So he's really focused on, um, uh, lower income and disadvantaged, uh, individuals, uh, health policy. And, um, I think they'll, they'll try to find areas of overlap, um, you know, the, 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 the Senate Health Committee is, is uh, there, there's another committee in the Senate, too, that has uh, major jurisdiction on health care issues, the Senate Finance Committee. So, uh, you know, Cassidy and, um, uh, and, and Senator Sanders uh, sort of focus more on, um, on public health. And I think there will be uh, uh, action there consistent with what Drew said. I think you could also see uh, them looking at problems with Medicare Advantage. Uh, Senator uh, Sanders does not like private health insurance companies. Um, he's very skeptical of Medicare Advantage. And I think there are some concerns about the way Medicare Advantage is working uh, that Senator Cassidy is probably sympathetic to. So you could probably um, uh, see potential uh, overlap there. Um, uh, and, you know, the committee also handles issues other than health care. So, uh, uh, but I, I would I would expect them to to be fairly serious in in the way that they approach their um, their policy. 
Well, cool. All right. Well, gentlemen, we have run out of time. I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Maybe we can revisit some of these topics at the end of the year to see how things are going. That sounds great. We'd love to check whether our predictions pan out. Yeah, great. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and honor being on. Real pleasure. All right. Well, Drew Keyes and Brian Blaze are with the Paragon Health Institute, and they are talking about us, uh, talking with us today about health policy priorities for the new Congress. And I will include a link to their policy brief that was released on December 5, I think. Yes. Uh, in our podcast notes. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give us a thumbs up on your favorite podcast platform. Share our link. The Heartland Daily Podcast is a great way to learn about free market solutions to our public policy challenges. This is Anne-Marie Schieber. 